Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by... Introducing the redesigned CatholicSingles.com, featuring new ways that put the spotlight on the person and their faith, not just a profile picture. For the past 20 years, faithful Catholics have used CatholicSingles.com, and the reimagined CatholicSingles.com website is ready to help single Catholics take the next step in sharing meaningful relationships with other faithful Catholics. Remember, CatholicSingles.com, for faith, fellowship, and love. Ignatius Press is pleased to announce the first national book club created for Catholic schools. Ignatius Book Club for Catholic Schools was launched to support Catholic schools' dedication to forming the whole child, mind, body, and spirit. Ignatius Book Club for Schools partnered with leading publishers of children's literature to offer the best books and educational materials for all reading levels and interests. Head to ignatiusbookclub.com slash podcast and find wholesome books that delight, inspire, and enrich. Welcome to Hilaire Belloc's Characters of the Reformation. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. In this ninth episode, we consider Queen Mary Tudor, unfortunately sometimes referred to as Bloody Mary. Mary was the half-sister of Edward VI, who immediately succeeded Henry VIII. Hilaire Belloc, of course, is sympathetic to her, and he explains her sad life, her unfortunately short reign, and the reasons for the persecution for which she is so unjustly famous. Mary Tudor Most of the leading characters of the English Reformation have been presented to modern readers in a distorted fashion. Mary Tudor, Henry VIII's eldest child and only legitimate daughter, has been more distorted than, than any other, and it is therefore of interest and importance that we get the judgment right. The reason her character has been more distorted than any other is this, that she was the most strongly orthodox Catholic of all the principal figures of the time. Because of this, the English writers, when England had become Protestant long after, tended to make Mary Tudor a more active figure than she was, because they tended to make her the villainess of the piece. A ridiculous picture was drawn of a vindictive, fanatical woman attempting to repress the universal dislike of Catholicism by a short reign of terror. Her short reign is still called, in the official English histories at Oxford and Cambridge, the Marian Reaction as though the English people were then progressing in a tide towards Protestantism, and Protestantism was all in favor, and in the six short years of Mary's reign, there was an abortive and cruel attempt to check a great national movement. All that, of course, is absurdly false. Of all the falsehoods of our official history, it is perhaps the one falsehood most widely divorced from reality. There was no national movement towards Protestantism. Queen Mary was popular. The prosecution and execution of the religious revolutionaries excited no national protest. The true picture of Mary Tudor is that of a woman simple in character, like her mother, somewhat warped by isolation, devout, thoroughly virtuous, led of necessity by her all-powerful counsel, but in some points insisting upon her own will without too much judgment. She was also a woman suffering, like all Henry's children, from bad health and dying early. 
a woman who was thoroughly representative in her religion of the bulk of the nation, and yet who was somewhat out of touch with the spirit of the nation in important matters such as that of her Spanish marriage. It is further true that had she lived a few years longer, England would probably be Catholic today, and had she had a child, England would certainly be Catholic today, for the English people had always loved her and always regarded her as their true queen, and would not have tolerated the rivalry of anyone against her descendants. Mary Tudor was born in 1516 on February 18th, when Henry and his wife Catherine of Aragon had been happily married for less than seven years, and when the young king was still devoted to his wife, and when everything was going well. Queen Catherine had had great misfortune in the matter of childbirth, children stillborn or dying immediately after birth, and one or two miscarriages. When, therefore, it was seen that the child would survive, it was a matter of great rejoicing to the king and the whole nation. Henry hoped, of course, for male heir, but as none came, he and the nation took it for granted that the little princess would ultimately become one of those great queens who were so conspicuous a mark of the period, like her grandmother, Isabella of Castile. Then came the tragedy of Henry's infatuation with Anne Boleyn. We shall never understand Mary's character unless we appreciate the fact that she grew up under influence of that tragedy. Just in those years when strong emotions are felt and the whole character is formed, she was a very intelligent, very well-educated, sensitive child in her twelfth year, devoted to her mother and standing in affectionate awe of her father. When the first news of a sort which could be told to a child came to her of Anne's disgraceful power over the king. She was in her fourteenth year when the great trial was held under Wolsey and Campeggio in London by which Henry hoped to obtain his divorce from her mother, Queen Catherine. She was already quite able to understand everything that was happening and to burn with indignation against the abominable way in which her mother was being treated. She was a woman grown in her eighteenth year when Anne Boleyn was crowned queen and was therefore in a position to heap indignity and insult not only on the legitimate queen, who was now exiled from court, but on the legitimate heiress to the English throne, Mary herself. It was at such an age, eighteen, that Mary saw the illegitimate child of her mother's rival, the baby Elizabeth, proclaimed heiress to England and herself legally bastardized. Finally, when she lost her chief support by her mother's death, she was within six weeks of her twentieth birthday. All that youth of hers had been passed in the one preoccupation of the shameful affair which was bitterly disastrous and humiliating to her. Her father would have renewed his relations of affection with her if he could, but he was too weak, and Anne Boleyn always interfered. Henceforth she was utterly lonely, and could depend for counsel and advice upon no one in the kingdom, only upon her cousin, the great emperor Charles V, sixteen years older than herself, and the head of her mother's family. Mary stood out as best she could against the schism, but in her bewilderment, and under the strain of perpetual pressure, she gave way, and in a tragic moment admitted Henry's supremacy, though in her heart, of course, she never accepted it. As long as Henry lived, that is, till the year 1547, by which time Mary Tudor was a woman of nearly 31, and already marked by permanent grief, she remained in this anomalous situation, and further troubles began with the accession to power of the gang of harpies who looted the royal domain and the church under her little half-brother Edward VI. 
they tried to interfere with her practice of her religion, and indeed she was only maintained in her religion by the active intervention of her cousin, the emperor. When the diseased little boy died, an effort was made by Cranmer, Cecil, Dudley, and the rest to substitute Lady Jane Grey for Mary's legitimate claim to the throne. They tried to trap Mary into coming to London, where they would certainly have imprisoned her and probably put her to death. She showed great courage. Her cousin, the emperor, advised her to take refuge on the continent. She refused to do so. She made a prodigious ride of two days away from London eastward, and there was an enthusiastic popular uprising in her favor, which destroyed the plans of her conspirators. But here came the crisis. She could not reign without the great nobles, the very same people who had conspired against her. They were too powerful for her to do without them. She did indeed release from prison and take for her principal advisor the great Bishop Gardner, but she had to admit to the council much the same sort of men as those who had been guilty of the orgy of loot of church property under her little brother's reign. She had to accept as an accomplished fact the millions they enjoyed out of the robbery of the church, and she could not but feel all the time that her position was one of compromise. Popular though she was with the mass of the English people, and highly accomplished, she was handicapped in person, and with no experience of the world, and she had little training in the judgment of character. She was, as I have said, of bad health. She was short, prematurely aged, in her thirty-eighth year, but looking fifteen years older. She had a rough, deep voice, almost like a man's, a head too big for her body, and altogether an unimpressive presence. And in her relations with the men and women about her, she was much too ready to believe in the good, and doubt the evil. This was especially the case in her relations with her younger sister, the illegitimate Elizabeth. That young woman, only twenty when Mary came to the throne, was the figurehead at once of the small revolutionary party in religion, and of all those thousands of newly enriched men among whom were now divided the spoils of the church. They accepted in Parliament, which was entirely composed of their class, the reconciliation with Rome but only on condition that they could keep the monastic lands which they had looted from the church. At the very beginning of her reign, the matter of her marriage went wrong. It was imperative that she should be married soon, and that there should be an heir to the throne. After much hesitation and repeated prayer, she determined to marry her cousin Philip, the emperor's son, to whom had been given the kingdom of Spain and the Netherlands, a man fifteen years younger than herself. The marriage was somewhat unpopular throughout England. It was most unpopular with the rich, because throughout Europe the quarrel of the Reformation was now long established, and Philip, standing as he did as the head of the Catholic cause, seemed to endanger the continued possession of the new millionaires of the church lands which they had stolen in England. The discontent was fanned by the French king and his ambassador in London, because the marriage would increase the power of Spain, France's rival at the time. There was an insurrection, which very nearly succeeded, backed with French guns. It was launched under the promise that there would be a French invasion in aid of it. This insurrection, called Wyatt's Rebellion, was put down. But Mary was far too merciful on this occasion. She spared her younger half-sister Elizabeth, who was undoubtedly mixed up in the affair, and she believed Elizabeth when that princess declared herself wholeheartedly Catholic and disavowed the religious revolutionaries. But those revolutionaries were now not only religious, they were also political revolutionaries, and many of them social revolutionaries as well. Moreover, 
The sincerely religious enthusiasts among them had an intensity of feeling which made them exceedingly dangerous. Philip, now King of England side by side with the Queen, was on the advice of his father, the Emperor, strongly in favor of dealing with this danger as a purely civil and political one. He felt that the revolutionaries should be dealt with as traitors rather than heretics. But the council, which in those days was the real governing power, was exasperated. They would try to put down the revolutionaries as heretics rather than as traitors. When, therefore, a sermon was preached by one of the fanatics praying for the queen's death, instead of getting the culprit hanged for treason, which would probably have been their wiser course, they proceeded to inaugurate a policy of prosecutions for heresy. For one man who would have risked death under the infamous charge of treason, there were ten who were ready to offer themselves as martyrs for various forms of intense anti-Catholic feeling, principally Calvinism. Therefore, the council's original hope that a few executions would be sufficient to suppress the rebellion failed, and though the executions were restricted to a comparatively small part of England, they were numerous and continuous. In this way, the last half of Mary's short reign was filled with the perpetual attempt to suppress the revolutionary movement as a religious rather than a political cause. But all the while, it must be remembered that Mary herself remained personally popular, especially with the poor people, with whom she mixed humbly and charitably, while her undoubted position as legitimate in birth and true queen was enthusiastically acclaimed to the end. Philip, soon after the marriage, had left for the continent, where his presence was necessary in the war against France. The queen was supposed to be with child. Everything was made ready for the birth. But it was a false alarm. She was not pregnant, but suffering from the dropsy from which she died. Her death was a very holy and beautiful death. She died as her mother, the queen, had died, hearing the mass which was being said in her death chamber in the early hours of a dark winter's morning. And it is pathetic but pleasant to remember that as she died, she said that she saw angel children around her bed. With her death, the whole gang immediately seized power, using Elizabeth, whom she had spared, and whom she had regarded as her successor, because she had been deceived by the violent protestations of Catholic loyalty on the part of that wicked princess. With the death of Mary and the advent of Elizabeth began that slow and ultimately successful attempt to drive the mass out of England and destroy Catholicism in the people. But Mary died under the impression that the situation had been met, and that the national religion, to which the great majority of Englishmen still adhered, was no longer in grave or imminent peril, but would be maintained by her half-sister Elizabeth. Thank you for listening to Characters of the Reformation. If you're enjoying this podcast series, please share it with others and let them know so that they can listen too. It's always good, I think, to learn more about church history because learning about the history helps us to understand what's going on in the church today. If you appreciate these podcasts, I would remind you that although they are free to listen to on Breadbox Media and other podcast outlets, they're not free to produce. If you would like to support the production of the podcast, you can make a donation on the homepage of my blog, Standing on My Head, which can be found at DwightLongenecker.com. Thank you for listening. Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by Jack Kane Ford. Find your next Ford Tough vehicle at KaneFord.com. Woodhill Community Center. Have a hand in the heart of the city. 
support their mission with your donations at woodhillcommunitycenter.org. Toyota in Nicholasville Superstore. Online consultants are standing by right now to help you find your next Toyota. Visit toyotaonnicholasville.com. Lexus of Lexington, home of the best-selling Lexus IS. Find yours today at lexusoflexington.com.